Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 80 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is a discussion of best practices for conducting internal investigation of sexual misconduct complaints in the Me Too environment. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Before we get started, two points. First, please subscribe to our podcast and rate the podcast. Uh, to help let other compliance professionals know about the podcast. Second, I wanted to mention that my law firm, the Volkoff Law Group, conducts sensitive internal investigations and proactive strategies to foster a uh, internal investigation and effective internal investigations and a speak-up culture. We have extensive experience in this area and have conducted many internal investigations for companies that are independent, fair, and thorough, and tailored to the relevant facts and allegations. If interested in our services in this area, please contact me at mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Well, this is a, an overdue um, podcast to sort of dig into the issues that come up uh, that I think all companies are experiencing these days, which is uh, an increase in the awareness surrounding um, sexual misconduct uh, claims and complaints. And uh, these pose real serious risks to a company, and they have to be handled uh, carefully and deliberately uh, in order to avoid uh, significant legal pitfalls as well as reputational pitfalls. So, um, this is a fairly lengthy uh, podcast, and I apologize for that. I could have broken it up into two, but I decided to keep it in one together just in case uh, you wanted to hear the whole thing at one sitting. Um, I spoke before in episode 78 concerning the corporate risks, legal harms, and reputational risks from mishandling or failure to act concerning a company's uh, workplace environment. And we've witnessed an incredible rise in concern and advocacy surrounding maintaining a safe workplace environment. Unfortunately, we've seen some real serious instances uh, in, the, in the press reporting where companies have improperly handled sexual assault and harassment issues. And the rise of the Me Too era, era really has resulted in several significant trends. One, an increase in the number of complaints so that there's more comfort or more awareness around the need to report uh, sexual misconduct in the workplace. Uh, Companies have to embrace this uh, and make it part of their speak-up culture and welcome these reports, and they have to also respond to these allegations by conducting appropriate investigations, timely investigations, then correcting any problems in its workplace, ongoing or past and disciplining appropriate offenders and devoting significant resources to protecting the safety of its workplace. So in today's episode, I want to focus on appropriate responses, strategies, and investigations, mainly investigations of sexual misconduct complaints. Um, A company really has to demonstrate its commitment to its code of conduct and its speak-up culture by words and by action. When allegations of sexual misconduct occur, there should be no question as to whether uh, the ethics and compliance program and officers offered a safe recourse for employees, as well as your HR department, obviously. There should also be no gray area or room for interpretation in how violations are defined. And most importantly, and what we're going to focus on today, is a robust 
uh, investigative uh, protocol, which has to be documented, communicated, and scrupulously followed to ensure that incidents are properly investigated and reviewed. So uh, let's start out with a couple of you know, basic questions. Why is it important to have a, a respectful workplace? Obviously, it's the law. It's the right thing to do, and it's about ensuring you're doing what is right. Um, disrespect or a lack of workplace safety can uh, occur just by an overt action by a manager or someone who has power authority or authority. It creates a hostile work environment, and it can often be subtle behavior. So we need to be um, uh, sensitive to that. Also, harassment. Where do you see it? Uh, you know, there's obviously verbal harassment, nonverbal harassment, sexual uh, harassment, touching, uh, and in sort of uh, also getting into sort of what I would call defined spaces around people in terms of what's acceptable. Now, harassment and the law, uh, we have Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. State law can apply. We also have uh, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which can receive complaints as well. Um, on more specific types of uh, issues that can come up, we have the Americans with Disabilities Act, Genetic Discrimination Act, Pregnancy Discrimination Act, and others. So these are all uh, important considerations in the background of this type of uh, initiative. From uh, just to give you a little bit more flavor about the reporting, the incidents, and uh, some background in terms of how important this issue has become, from uh, fiscal year 2010 to 2017, uh, the EEOC received more than 12,000 charges of sex-based harassment each year. 32% of 84,000 charges from the EEOC that they received or allegations in, let's say, fiscal year 2017 included allegations of workplace harassment. So one-third of what they get is usually one is uh, workplace harassment. 46% of these 84,000 alleged sex-based harassment, and six, interestingly, 16% were filed by male uh, complainants. Uh, a new, well, not so new, but 2018 Pew Research Center survey found that when it comes to sexual harassment in the workplace, more Americans think men are getting away with it, and female accusers uh, are not being believed are major problems. Uh, so more people believe that men get away with it, that female accusers are not going to be believed, then say the same about employers who fire men before finding out all facts or women making false accusations. So um, basically the, the current thinking in the public and in the work, probably your workforce is that men get away with this and women are not going to be believed when they raise concerns. Many Americans also believed uh, the increased focus on sexual harassment and assault poses new challenges for men as they have to interact with women at work. About half of Americans say the recent developments have made it harder for men to know how to interact with women in the workplace. Um, only 12% say this increased focus has made it easier for men, and 36% say it hasn't made any difference. 
Most importantly, the, the survey also finds that 59% of women and 27% of men said they, they have personally received unwanted sexual advances or verbal or physical harassment of a sexual nature, whether in or outside of a work context. Among women who said they've been sexually harassed, more than half say it has happened both in and outside of work settings. Um, half of the Americans think that men are getting away with this type of behavior and that it's a major problem. Uh, 46% see women not being believed when they claim they have experienced sexual harassment or assault, and they think it's a major problem in the workforce. So uh, um, a lot of women, uh, 72% of all employees, this is another uh, survey, uh, 72% of employees who are harassed don't report it. Uh, 43% fear, fear being labeled a troublemaker. 24% say it's their word against the other person's. And, and the, you know, that gets uh, pejoratively described as he said, she said. And 20% uh, fear losing uh, their job or retaliation. And 13% uh, no, said no reason given. Now, so employers have a legal duty to investigate complaints of discriminatory harassment. So that, let's start with that legal duty. And it could relate to gender discrimination, race, disability, national origin, religion, or any other protected characteristic. So there's a duty to investigate under Title VII. Title VII requires that uh, a company quote, take all steps necessary to prevent harassment from occurring, close quote. 29 CFR uh, 1604.11F. Employer must show it exercised reasonable care to prevent and correct discriminatory harassment. If it's ongoing conduct, we, uh, we have a duty to intervene and prevent it and stop it. So when an employer receives a complaint of sexual harassment, discrimination, or bullying, the employer's legal obligation is to take reasonable steps to prevent and correct any unlawful behavior. Reasonable steps include maintaining a written policy on sexual harassment, discrimination, and bullying that is stripped of legalese, frequently disseminated, easily accessible to employees, and then there are requirements for training, particularly in uh, in uh, New York and in California. Aside from describing what kinds of conduct may constitute harassment, discrimination, and bullying, the policy must contain a complaint procedure which provides the lead-up to the employer's investigation process. Interestingly, even if there's no violation of, of law, an employer is generally obligated by its own policies, good business practices, and fear of litigation to take appropriate remedial steps when there is an allegation of misconduct. Um, because the employer's remedial action relies significantly on investigative findings, it is vital to know what makes an investigation effective. Um, uh, at its heart, an effective investigation is about fairness to all involved. It should allow the complainant to be heard, address the complainant's concerns, and allow the subject to tell their side of the story. So, by the way, even if a complainant asks the employer not to investigate, perhaps out of fear of retaliation, the employer still must investigate. Remember, liability for sexual ha harassment attaches to the employer if it knew or should have known about the harassment. 
Thus, if anyone in a management position or any uh, learns of alleged harassment, such knowledge is imputed to the employer and an obligation to take swift remedial action arises. Similarly, if the complainant demands strict confidentiality with regard to the handling of the complaint, he or she should be informed that in order to ensure a thorough investigation, strict confidentiality cannot be guaranteed. Finally, the complainant, as well as every witness interviewed, should be reminded that they are protected from retaliation for having participated in the investigation. This is a big point. Each participant should be informed of steps that they should take if they feel they are subject to retaliation. And HR and compliance should check in with the complainant periodically after the investigation is concluded to ensure that retaliation is not occurring. Obviously, more employees are aware of their rights and feel emboldened to exercise them. Additionally, complaints not only involve the traditional categories of discrimination and harassment, but now increasingly include harder-to-define areas such as bullying and intimidation. In the current environment, there is also a higher expectation that employers investigate and address complaints uh, appropriately. Uh, five common uh, pitfalls, which I'm going to briefly mention and then get into more detail uh, on internal investigations here. One, five common pitfalls do not, in, uh, when a company doesn't in, initiate an investigation until it receives a formal complaint but learns about the activity or knows about the activity, that's a problem. Two, uh, consider using uh, resources outside the organization for help. Uh, and meaning you need an independent investigation, uh, and it can't be done internally. Uh, those can be, you know, high profile uh, or depending upon the nature of the uh, allegations. So always think about using outside investigators uh, to provide independence and ensure independence and free sort of from free yourself from allegations of um, of, of uh, bias. Um, you can't promise confidentiality. Um, uh, you can, uh, you, no manager can make that point uh, or promise. And obviously during an investigation, you cannot promise complete confidentiality. You can talk about how you do keep certain things confidential, but that it, can, uh, it may have to be disclosed at some point. Um, another pitfall is you can't, and this is a big point to me, you can't just... Uh, you know, take a complaint, get a he said versus she said set of uh, she said set of facts, and then just say, okay, I can't. Uh, we're not going to do anything here because uh, we can't resolve he said versus she said. That's not uh, that's not a good response. There are going to be times where you're going to have to make credibility determinations, and the corroborating evidence may point you one way. Uh, if your system is in, if you're sort of wiping off complaints by saying he said, she said, that's going to be a problem. And do not rush to judgment. Keep an open mind and look uh, towards everything. There are obviously many other components to what I would call investigation excellence. And uh, employers should uh, also consider training as well as process updates to the investigators and the investigating process. Um, so, my number one starting point is that there has to be a system in place 
to triage sexual misconduct complaints. We need to isolate these. We need to uh, and isolate them in a good way, meaning we're going to attack them and we're going to respond to them quickly. We're going to devote resources to it and get going. So an effective investigation uh, so a system has to flag these types of concerns. We can't just put them in the run-of-the-mill type of things because there's too much risk here. An effective investigation is timely done, uh, documents the conduct, and makes findings but not legal conclusion. Um, an investigation that starts close in time to when a complaint is made and moves swiftly but thoroughly through the investigative steps, that's interviews, evidence evaluation, report writing sends a strong signal that the employer takes complaints seriously. So there's no, you can't rush an investigation. You have to stick to your good practices, but you cannot let these uh, uh, investigations languish. Um, an employer should always explain to the complainant the employer's policy on harassment, discrimination, and bullying. Describe the investigative process in the initial stages. Give a rough estimate of timing, or at least a time frame, uh, and, and make sure that they check in with the complainant and provide assurance on the employer's policy to prevent retaliation. Um, and you cannot, while you cannot promise confidentiality, you should request that the complainant be discreet with respect to the investigation while it's ongoing. Um, and you should always ask the complainant, what are you looking for? What do you want from the process so that I can uh, make sure that this process works for you? Documenting the investigative process includes spelling out, uh, obviously documenting every contact, every step that's taken in the investigation, list of evidence and witnesses, um, and gather all relevant information and speak to all relevant witnesses. Um, any individuals who observed the conduct, heard about the event, directly from either the complainant or subject, or may have insight into the event or course of conduct or the individuals involved. I'm not saying and I'm not advocating that you have to interview everyone uh, and their mother, but an investigator has to keep an open mind and interview more than the complainant and the subject, even in he said, she said situations. This is the way that you resolve the he said versus she said. Documentation uh um, means uh, writing up interview memos. Uh, I don't record uh, interviews, uh, and that to me is a, a best practice. Um, and the investigative report obviously has to document the process, include an analysis section and findings of fact. The report should provide a step-by-step -step breakdown of how the investigator arrived at the, at the uh, conclusions of fact by a preponderance of the evidence. The analysis should incorporate, obviously, witness statements, credibility determinations where necessary and appropriate, and evidence. The investigator may make determinations as to whether the employer's policies were uh, violated. I, uh, I may not make determinations, and I apologize for that. The investigator finds the facts, does not make uh, determinations as to law, and that should uh, and what discipline should occur. That, as you'll hear, is uh, handled by somebody else. The investigator also has to avoid perceptions of bias, regardless of whether an employer uses an in-house or external investigator. 
Um, we, the aggrieved party and complainant uh, has to have a feeling and be reassured that there's no bias and is objective. And that's important in how you conduct your questioning and your interviews and who you talk to and how you interact with the complainant. Um, there's enough problems as it is, if, even if you have uh, an employee investigator or you have an outside investigator who's paid by the company, there's enough bias perceptions that come with that that you have to really bend over backwards to make sure you can maintain uh, your independence and to uh, make that, uh, reinforce that uh, perception. Um, uh, and once the investigative process has concluded and the employer has the final report, it's just as important to follow through. If somebody's going to be disciplined, uh, if somebody, if there are corrective measures that need to be taken, more training, more uh, monitoring of behaviors at a certain office or things like that, all of these are going to have to be handled carefully and promptly. And there also are confidentiality issues uh, that have to be protected with regard to personnel uh, actions, which are going to prevent the employer from disclosing everything uh, to, serve to the complainant. Uh, as well as to uh, other people as well. So um, this has to be handled in a, in, a, in a sensitive way and in a prompt way. So a successful investigation is prompt, it's effective, it's remedial, and it's confidential to the extent it can, can be. So let's dig in a little bit more on some of these issues. It's critical to use the right person to conduct the investigation. Now, often it's HR personnel uh, but in these areas, you may want to bring in legal counsel as well uh, or have an outside independent um, person conduct the investigation. Uh, outside law firms are doing this a lot more. We're doing uh, this a lot more. And that's because we, have, uh, we bring, hopefully, independence and sensitivity. You also have to consider the temperament and personal characteristics of the parties and potential witnesses, and you want to make sure you're using a skilled investigator uh, who has expertise. And you also have to think about if it's an in, uh, will the investigator make a credible witness if there is litigation against the company. So the investigator has to be unbiased, unprejudiced understand the purpose of the investigation, know the issues to be addressed, know the employer's policies, procedures, practices, and rules, have good interviewing skills, be sensitive, patient, ask open-ended questions, have credibility, objectivity, and impartiality, and be able to prepare a good and accurate complete record as well. Neutrality is really key when determining um, whether an in-house or outside investigator should be used. A trained manager or human resources staff or uh, in-house attorney can, can fit the bill, um, uh, especially when an in-house person has no ties to any of the parties involved. Uh, so in a large organization um, where there's no sort of connection between the investigator and any of the players involved, that may work uh, as well. But there may be situations where an in-house person isn't going to work uh, and that there are concerns about that, or you can sense that this could become a higher profile case, and that's when you may use uh, a neutral investigator. And you may tell the law firm, like we've been told, to find the facts, 
let the chips fall where they may. Uh, so be careful uh, in terms of making that initial decision as who is to um, uh, who's going to be handling that. Um, uh, also, if your external candidate, for example, like if you asked us to do it and we weren't available for weeks or months, uh, that's uh, that's going to be whatever we can do. Uh, that's going to be um, a situation where you may have to move uh, more timely, find somebody else, or, for example, uh, do it in-house. Uh, because the, time, the timeliness and the promptness of investigation is really uh, important um, in terms of this. So you're going to have to defend your decision, whatever it is that you do. So we identify the objectives and scope of the investigation, what's the purpose of it, what are our legal obligations, what are the core issues, um, and who are the key witnesses. And we obviously, as I've mentioned before in doing internal investigation uh, training, uh, we compile relevant documents. If there's a written complaint, we also obviously have to know our policies and procedures uh, with regard to the complaint. Uh, and that have an impact. And we, may, we should have an internal investigation protocol, which we're going to follow. But we also want to get prior relevant complaints, investigation files, personnel files, of the individuals involved, and other relevant uh, business records. Um, and we want to look at that. And we also want to take steps to preserve relevant information. And now, uh, given, you know, all the technological advances with uh, texting and messaging and all that, there's not, uh, we have a hold notice, you know, we issue a written notice to employees with the information outlining their duty to preserve information. Um, but we will suspend normal retention destruction procedures for key players um, automatic email deletion programs will stop and will image hard drives of key custodians in this case. But it's not just email anymore. We also have to look at phone data, digital messaging platforms, and of course, uh, information obtained in the interviews. And here's a key point. Do not stop collecting data. Continue to collect data and monitor data during the uh, investigation because you may find relevant evidence of people contacting each other, potential witnesses, to try to influence what they say during the investigation. Okay. In terms of confidentiality, a couple of uh, one point is to make sure that you limit the information flow to those with a need to know. Do not just keep it people informed. Uh, don't keep, uh, make sure that you can justify why information is provided to each person about the progress of the investigation or the status of the investigation. Um, we also, in many of these cases, I would urge you, because you know it's going to be a sensitive case, if you can identify those in particular, uh, it's good to maintain the attorney-client privilege, and we should take measures to protect this privilege um, and limit disclosures uh, to third parties, and uh, be careful what you put in any communications because this can all come out in litigation if it's not privileged, so we have to be uh, very careful. Um, we also want to uh, assess uh, the need based on the uh, uh, allegations and based on initial inquiries, if there's a need to protect the complaining party, the alleged victim, or anybody in particular. Um, so you may be in a situation where you have to place the accused harasser, if there's sufficient information to do this, 
on leave, uh, paid or unpaid, or change supervisory responsibilities, or temporarily transfer people. This can be done if there is a danger uh, and a need to protect that person. But you may have to separate the complaining party and the alleged harasser. So uh, do not, in doing so, though, don't, do not, um, can, you know, you make sure you consider the perception that if you change some conditions that you're penalizing the alleged victim. Do not do that, obviously. Um, so you got to be careful, and legally you have to take careful steps in documenting any temporary measure that you want to do uh, with regard to separating, let's say, a harasser and a complainant. Um, so we decide on a preliminary, we collect our documents and then we decide on a preliminary order of interviews. Uh, if you've listened to my other interview, um, techniques type of webinars and podcasts, uh, we don't write out the questions, but you prepare sort of a checklist of issues that you want to cover. You want to, and you have your documents to also use during the interview. Um, do not ever conduct conduct interviews in groups. Um, you talk to each person individually and you have a note taker with you who's going to write up a memo summarizing the interview. Um, do not conduct interviews in settings where other employees can observe the witnesses coming and going. Um, and you want to, uh, and while you conduct the interview, no leading questions. Everything is a direct question just uh, open-ended, non-judgmental questions. Um, we don't want to have yes or no type of questions. So we elicit facts um, and uh, make sure you advise everybody of the non-retaliation party. When you meet with the complainant, explain that the employer is committed to uh, compliance with law and its policies and ask the complainant what's the outcome that he or she would like from the process, get a thorough explanation of the conduct, request names of witnesses, also ask the complainant for any documentation, notes, or other materials that can substantiate what they're talking about, telephone records, calendars, letters, gifts, photographs, social media, um, obviously find out if he or she has confronted or spoken to the harasser about the conduct. Obviously that's important. Has he or she informed anyone else about the harassment, including any reports to the employer? Um, and is he or she aware of any other individuals who've been harassed by the same person? Uh, and explain that no conclusion has been reached and the invest investigation has just been initiated. Uh, and that the information will not be disclosed to anyone except on a need-to-know basis, and obviously reiterate no retaliation, and if there are incidents or signs of possible retaliation, urge the complainant to uh, contact you if necessary. When you meet with the accused person, or the subject of the investigation, let's say, you explain the purpose of the interview and why he or she is being interviewed uh, they can have a representative present, uh, obviously, uh, a lawyer present with them. Um, and uh, you want to explain that the employer is committed to compliance with the law and its policies. And uh, you want to make sure that you can outline the allegations uh, and ask questions related to each allegation in adequate detail to give that person an opportunity to provide a full response. 
Um, and obviously any interactions or communications about the uh, alleged discriminatory conduct or harassing conduct, um, please get make sure that that is um, fully aired out you know, during the interview. Um, and advise the, uh, the subject that the, there's a non-retaliation party and a confidentiality requirement, but you cannot guarantee confidentiality, um, you know, that it will be maintained. Um, when conducting your investigation, please do not just gather or focus on evidence to support a preordained conclusion. You want to get all sides of the story, and you want to try to resolve the he, the uh, if there's a discrepancy and a difference of opinion or difference of perception, you want to uh, get as much evidence as you can to try to resolve that. Never communicate your personal views. Uh, never communicate what you think about anybody in this. Don't characterize anybody's responses or provide any opinion in your notes or during the interview. Um, the reason is that most interview notes will become discoverable eventually. So be careful that the notes are literally just taking down exactly what uh, is being said and going and being said back and forth. We are going to include the facts, not legal conclusions or the interviewer's personal interpretations, opinions, assumptions in the notes. And obviously, I've said do not record or video the interviews. And so remember that your interview notes are likely and, uh, to become discoverable at some point. So you want to document your findings and determine an appropriate course of action. And by that, in a course of action, I only mean that uh, here are the facts that occurred and uh, here are the restrictions, uh, here are this is what occurred, and we believe, um, you know, let's say we believe the complainant's uh, uh, concerns are, are, are substantiated. Um, and after that, we're going to get at the important, um, the important points in terms of what you do with this, the investigation. So going back to the investigation, we ensure confidentiality. We provide interim protection if it's needed. We select the investigator. We the investigator creates a plan. We do questions, review documents, and then they're going to make a finding with regard to the substantiation or non-substantiation of the allegations, each of them. Uh, and at that point, uh, what happens then? Well, at that point, uh, there has to be an before we get to the, the next step after that, there's the investigative report, which has to include a summary of the allegations, the remedy that's requested by the complainant, uh, a summary of the relevant policy procedures, rules, or instructions, and then a review of the witness interviews, the relevant documents, a chronology of events, uh, and findings of fact that are supported. In the statement of uh, findings of fact drawn from the allegations, uh, and there's not a discussion that it should be in this report because it's likely to become discoverable as to whether or not it's a violation and what remedial actions are going to be taken. Um, all you're doing is determining the substantiation or non-substantiation of the allegation. We found sufficient evidence to substantiate the allegation or we did not find sufficient evidence. 
the complainant and the accused have to be advised of the um, uh, um, the we advise the complainant and the accused of the outcome, and then we will implement a prompt course of remedial action if necessary. Now, how do we get to that point of what's going to happen? What's the reme- what's the discipline, if any, and what's the remediation? Here is where uh, I would urge uh, every company to establish an independent review committee that reviews all of these allegations uh, and, frankly, could review all of the internal investigations, not the, let's say, run-of-the-mill ones uh, like, you know, somebody looked at me in a, a nasty way. I'm talking about the more serious ones. But so companies have to create and empower an independent committee at the senior executive level of relevant officers to review, monitor, and ultimately resolve allegations and incidents of sexual misconduct. So we've seen in numerous high-profile incidents, companies have failed to exercise proper oversight, investigation, and consistent resolutions, particularly with regard to senior executive misconduct. Uh, Google ran into problems in this area, and many companies, obviously CBS did, and others. Um, so you have to make sure that we have an independent committee uh, that's going to be able to see across all of the violators who commit potential misconduct at supervisory and employee levels and make sure that there's no disparate treatment, that we have consistent treatment of violators who engage in sexual misconduct, because if you have disparate treatment, there's going to be a corrosive impact on your culture. And at the heart of a number of the high-profile Me Too scandals has been an unwillingness of corporate executives to hold other senior officers accountable, either excusing such conduct or failing to impose appropriate discipline and uh, terminating them without financial benefits. So companies have found it hard to acknowledge and address sexual misconduct issues uh, and as these increase and are substantiated with the, within the overall corporate landscape, companies have to recognize the need for comprehensive remediation and resources needed to address the problem. Violators have to be held accountable, disciplined, and terminated when appropriate. Violators cannot be rewarded with large severance payouts or hush agreements among corporate managers and board members. Many employers are uh, also many companies are employing an interesting requirement which mandates that managers and supervisors who learn of a sexual harassment allegation, whether made directly or indirectly, uh, are required to report the allegation immediately uh, to human resources for follow-up. So uh, an investigation report has to be a critical tool for management then to assess the findings make recommendations, and uh, is an important basis for remedial measures that have to be made. And if there's a pattern of conduct or there's uh, this sort of independent committee has to basically monitor this activity and then make changes as necessary uh, and come up with a remediation plan, not just for the specific incident, but a comprehensive remediation plan that cuts across uh, the organization to address what may be a pattern of activity or a higher incidence uh, rate uh, uh, than than is necessary. So, or then should be the 
that should be occurring. So the culture is ultimately going to be protected by this independent review committee, and it's incredibly important for companies to create such a committee, particularly with regard to these types of allegations, because there's so much focus on this right now, and it's so corrosive. We've seen Google with the walkout by employees, uh, and we've basically uh, seen company Uber, obviously, and other companies have experienced significant problems, and these have to be addressed. So think carefully about how this is monitored and then how you're going to also uh, require this committee to take affirmative steps, and this committee should obviously report directly to the board on their activities and what's occurring on a quarterly basis. Well, that's a quick review, and I apologize for how long this was, but uh, I thought it was important to get into it. There are obviously many, many more issues here that need to be uh, explored, and we will get into those uh, in future training uh, podcast sessions. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.volkofflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our new podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your goals.